from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Carrie Flanagan, I'm an actor. Jersey Gwizdowski, I'm an actor. And Kit Lavoy, I'm a writer and a director. Today we're talking about playing comedy. Comedy takes many different forms in uh, the theater and film, including situation comedy, dark comedy, light comedy, comedy of wit, satire, surreal comedy, musical comedy, sketch comedy. And we're going to be talking about approaches to playing in these sorts of genres. One of the things that is central uh, to the Cry Havoc artistic philosophy is the idea, and it is written down as the central tenet of our artistic philosophy, that Cry Havoc approaches all plays, both comedy and drama, as conflict between individuals struggling to do what each desperately believes is right. And there is something to the fact that uh, we that we have inserted into our philosophy that we approach both comedy and drama in this essentially similar way. It says something, I think, about what we are going to have to talk about today, about the nature of playing comedy. Uh, so what we're going to do uh, is talk about some of the things that, frankly, we've talked about in earlier episodes uh, as techniques and approaches, but specifically how to apply them to comedy, and also talk about some techniques and approaches that really are comedy-specific. Uh, so, to start us off, what do we mean when we talk about playing comedy? What is that? How is that different than telling a joke? Well, the way that I would describe the difference, it's like almost, it's like the difference between math and calculus. It's like you're taking a joke. A joke is a funny thing. I can say a funny thing to you right now, Jenny, and then you could tell it back to me, and we would both laugh. Um, but... The difference between that and playing comedy is that you're you're put you're putting yourself into the role. You're playing a, a situation. It's a three dimensional joke. It's the you know why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side versus I have to get across this road. <laughs> what are the ways in which I'm and going I'm to make chicken. creative choices <laughs> and, and use comedy techniques to you know get across this road <laughs> using my acting. Well, I mean, I think part of using the how did the chicken cross the road idea, there is that idea of if we were doing the play of the chicken crossing the road, yeah. it wouldn't be funny to watch the chicken play at being funny about, about crossing the road. But it actually might be funny to watch them dodge traffic if they were dodging traffic in, you know, a specific kind of, of funny way. Yeah. Um, you know, that the uh, it probably wouldn't be funny to watch them get hit. Although, in a certain kind of comedy, it actually really would be. But, I mean, I think one of the things that's really sort of central uh, to the idea of, of comedy, really, is that comedy is all about incongruity. Comedy is all about having an expectation, having that expectation foiled. So, there is that idea of, in, let's call it a cartoon, so we're not actually injuring chickens, but... 
it wouldn't be funny to watch a chicken trying to cross the road and 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 miss several cars and then one run it over. It might be very funny to watch a chicken very carefully check both ways, see miles in each direction, start crossing the road, and all of a sudden the bus comes out of nowhere. I mean that that is potentially funny in a cartoon setting, but it's entirely about the expectation that has been set up and the expectation that you're playing against. I think that's very true. And I'd also say, you know, there are, as you mentioned, Kit, the, um, the difference between playing comedy and trying to be funny, uh, which I actually think in joke telling a lot of times doesn't succeed either. If, you know, uh, in the world of like stand-up or improv comedy or vaudeville or sketch comedy, you know, clowning, any of those, you know, plays, um, to watch somebody go up there, even in joke telling, and try to be funny and do funny things, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll get a laugh, but I think the most successful comedians and comic actors play the scene, tell the joke, and work on the techniques of either delivering the line or pursuing the objective or crossing the road and working out that bit, you know, to the, you know, to the end of you want to get a laugh from the audience, but are, fo- are not focused on necessarily going up there and generally doing funny things, but doing very specific techniques and very specific work, knowing that the result will be a laugh. And I think oftentimes when you're talking about playing comedy too, because actually we sort of have premised that playing comedy is different than telling a joke, but that's not always the case because there are some characters who are funny, who are funny people and are intentionally trying to make people around them laugh. You know, so there might be a case where your character is telling a joke. Sure. But again, in those sorts of cases, what you want to do is try to figure out why am I telling the joke? Who specifically in this room am I trying to make laugh? Yeah. What do I know about their sense of humor, etc., etc., etc.? And I mean, I think if you look at Matthew Perry on Friends is a good example that, uh, you know, he was actually really great at that, that his character was clearly somebody who used humor, who was intentionally trying to be funny, but it wasn't just he was up there spinning off jokes. There was something very specific about the way he would say a joke to Joey versus the way he would say a joke to Monica, you know, that, that, that that idea of it's not just enough when you are playing a character who is trying to be funny to just try to be funny. You have to be, be funny in character and in the circumstances. And you know what's great about that character specifically, that's I think a phenomenal example because, and this is something that will probably come up you know, a little bit later in the discussion, but the way in which he told jokes is such a central part of the character and was just as much a trait as it was the, uh, the delivery of the jokes. And as many laughs were mined out of the fact that it was this guy that always tried to make a joke out of something and often tried to make the same joke out of the, the situation. Just as much comedy was gained from that as his one-liners. Tying into what you were saying about trying not to be funny, like you're, the, it, playing a comedy is the character in a situation trying to achieve something just like they would in any play, the stakes have to be just as high if it were a serious drama. I think what ends up making it funny is the, purely the circumstance and the thing you're working against because if you're trying to save your ice cream cone with the same conviction that you're trying to save your three-year-old from dangling on a cliff, like that's what's funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that there really is something though about, I mean, people say that, you know, you know dying, dying is easy, comedy is hard, you know, yeah. like, that comedy is harder than drama. And, 
And, you know, it certainly depends on the person who's doing it and things like that. But I think part of the reason for it is, and I think we'll get into the idea of, you know, that how exactly you get to the truth of things and using the different tools that an actor uses, but is that there's a different level of analysis that needs to happen when you're doing comedy before you can get to your usual acting work. Because, again... What makes things funny is the incongruity and the way it plays against expectation. But part of it is you have to really analyze as a person who's playing the scene what is outside of the expectation. What is the thing that is incongruous? Yeah. And what are the things that are not? Because it will not be funny if you just make everything incongruous. You know, and so that idea of being able to play truthfully both the thing that is unusual and the things that are what we expect. So, you know, for instance, you know, if you look at, you know, there was this great uh, parody on Saturday Night Live a while ago uh, with Alec Baldwin of Glengarry Glen Ross, where they basically took his character from Glengarry Glen Ross and put him inside a uh, Santa's uh, workshop, workshop yeah. and he was the head elf coming to fire the rest of the elves. But in that case, you know, what it was incredibly important to the humor, it seemed to me, that he stayed spot on in character and, you know, in terms of being the hard ass boss while wearing a, you know, elf hat and in a gingerbread house. Yeah. But that idea of that wouldn't have been funny if he hadn't stuck with the truth of the thing that we're supposed to recognize as being true. And again, that idea that you need to, he also needs to find the truth of what it is to be an elf for the parts of that that are important. But that idea of really being able to, before you get down to that work, to analyze what is it within the realm of expected and what is not. You know, I, it, for example, the um, just as a concept, like uh, Rock of Ages, which mm -hmm. is very funny to watch, but what makes it so funny to watch is it's these sort of absurd, over-the-top songs, but played with incredible sincerity. You know, if they played those as though they were supposed to be funny, the odds are they would not be funny. Yeah, and you know when it's working and when it isn't, because people either laugh or they don't, which is why I think there are specific techniques and ways to not necessarily inspire but maybe facilitate that laughter when you're playing comedy in a way that in drama you know creative choices and full commitment are incredibly important uh, both comedy and drama as you said in our in our philosophy but it's a lot harder to gauge the relative impact of the revelation of your terminal illness to your grandmother to an audience member rather than whether grandma fell down in a way that was hilarious because they'll laugh or they won't you know um and i think another another reason it might be a bit more cut and dry in comedy is that there seems to be an aspect of comedy which is mental whereas drama is more ethereal and maybe more based in the gut as a bit more of a nebulous quality. Well, I think what you're saying about the audience is a big part of it. I think every show there's a relationship between you and the audience, but yeah. there seems to be a very different kind of important relationship because you are getting that direct reaction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think within that you need to trust. You need to trust yourself in the moment. To I don't know. I I did a show where I said 
a line that every night was really funny. I thought it was really funny. It was fun to say. And one night it was like crickets right after I said it. So I thought in my head, well, clearly they didn't get that. I'll have to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it again. It was funny in a different way. Because then, then I was actually mad that they didn't laugh. And <laughs> so I, but it is such an interesting relationship, different than drama. Yeah. Well, this is actually getting a little bit ahead of our discussion, but I actually think that brings up something that I, I think is really important is, and it gets into something we talked about in our episode about uh, audience participation, but that idea of setting up your contract with an audience yeah. of what to expect. And that that, I think, is a very important part of playing comedy. Um, and it really has as much to do with directing comedy as it has to do with playing comedy, but they're married, is that idea of early on doing things to give people permission to laugh uh, and permission to find it funny, you know, so that they know that it's okay, so that they know that it's okay to find that thing that seems perverse is actually, you know, perversely funny instead of perverse in a way that we should be worried about the other characters about. Uh, and I, I think, you know, that, that type of stuff that we're getting into is work to, I, th I think as I said earlier, to facilitate the work that you're already doing. I think there are some fundamental things as that are true of acting drama, acting comedy. And it might be the way in which you approach them that makes them funny. But, I mean, primarily that commitment to your character, the pursuit of your objective, all those sort of fundamental acting tools are really sometimes even more important when you're playing comedy because the response is so clear it's almost just like a bullshit indicator mm -hmm. comedy you know for whether or not you've done your work <laughs> because the things you know the things that we're alluding to in terms of technique and joke telling skills and that's all there and that's all present but it's not necessarily a shortcut to making the audience laugh it's a way to support the work that you're already doing and if you're not doing that work you'll know and everybody in the room will know mm -hmm. because the most satisfying comedy in in my experience and I, I think you guys might agree is that that comes through fully realized character with history creative choices uh, pursuit of your objective incredibly high stakes specificity. Uh, belief specificity belief in the circumstances none of this stuff that we haven't talked about around this table for three and a half seasons of the podcast for but when you're in the lens of comedy, it becomes apparent and really obvious if that work isn't there. We actually should probably move into talking about some of that stuff. And, and I actually like, if, if we could, to kick off, because I'm sort of curious what you guys think about looking at your objectives, your obstacles, and your stakes as a group. Because there is something, I think, in comedy that you can get a lot of value out of having outsized objectives, outsized obstacles, outsized stakes, and also sometimes undersized obstacles, undersized uh, objectives, probably very rarely undersized stakes. Um, but but it, it, I, I often find that it reeks of desperation when people outsize everything. So I don't know what you guys think about when you work on comedy things uh, in terms of the modulation or the, or the way that you use those three things. Well. I like the word that you opened with, uh, incongruity, as a rule of the day. Because if all of those things are outsized and nothing's incongruous, then it's just a spastic kind of mess. Mm -hmm. um, to have, and I, I, I would say stakes can't be necessarily undersized or, or uh, you know mitigated, but 
they can in the sense of investment in something that on first glance doesn't appear like the ice cream cone yeah well the stakes in the ice cream of the ice cream cone are high so so endow, endowing something seemingly something unstake worthy yeah, <laughs> well, with then, those stakes well, exactly well that's actually what's tied into when it's seemingly desperate when you outsize everything it's actually really fun to play with the thing that you choose to outsize right versus basing on based on social expectations exactly like, what do you what do you what do you choose that you have not invested in which is compared to what you have invested in can be a lot of fun well like for instance there i don't know if you guys saw mark rylance's performance in labette yes which was phenomenally funny and basically he was playing you know this character who was trying to ingratiate himself to this famous writer i mean it was back in the olden days but that was the whole thing and he went to absolute extreme lengths to impress this guy. But part of it was that his objective was so clear, which was to impress this person he respected, which is something that as far off the rails as his behavior became, it was both incredibly funny, but a little bit heartbreaking the whole time because he understood he just wanted to impress this guy who he respected and was just getting getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse in a way that if he had been doing those things and what he was trying to do was try to get that guy fired so he could have his job, it would have been much less interesting yeah. and much less compelling. Um, you know, because again, everything would have been outsized. Right. Then that hyper-investment in the objective also, I think, in some way defines the style. Because I don't really know. When I'm in a show that's a farce or a, you know, what are our different styles? Are surreal comedy. Like, I don't necessarily know how to play a style of comedy in a, in a particular sense in terms of my basic acting work. But what I do know is if I have an outsized obstacle in a given situation, I think we could look at some of the major forms of comedy and some major figures in comedy. And if I think of like Charlie Chaplin, for example, mm -hmm. there are certain scenarios in which I think the majority of them that the obstacle is giant. And the, the entire routine or the entire scene is about overcoming that giant obstacle. And I'm sure as you guys think you know, of, of other scenes, there, there's the intense investment in the objective, the outsized objective which almost shifts it into another style. Mm -hmm. um, but the pursuit of the objective, the investment in the stakes, and overcoming that obstacle uh, is something that the audience needs to get behind, which is, you know, like the empathy with Mark Reynolds' character in Labette, which I, I um, also thought was hilarious. But you can't invest in, you can't laugh at it if you don't see, if you don't appreciate what, he, what he's going for positive choices. I mean, that's something that is not the first time this has come up around the podcast table. I think Robin Williams, who tells jokes and is an actor in drama and comedy, has a really pithy thing. You know, comedy is acting out optimism, mm -hmm. which is, I know that this person is trying to talk to that girl on the park bench and everything, the policeman and the garbage can and the baby with the candy is getting in his way. But I can invest in his need to talk to that girl in the park bench. And every creative solution to it, in the same way that in a drama, a creative uh, objective or a creative tactic is surprising, is satisfying to see happen mm -hmm. in that moment. It, it's also interesting in, in terms of 
you, you know, the flip side of acting out optimism is you think about like Larry David, yeah. um, uh, uh, curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. You know, that he, uh, that I mean, part of that, I mean, you could, could analyze all of these things all day, but part of what that seems to me to be doing is actually lowering the social obstacles for that one character. Yeah. You know, that the things that, there are so often that the things he has to say are not things that other people don't think. It's just that he has lowered the social obstacle of not saying those things to people. And then it's sort of about what happens when somebody removes that obstacle for themselves and does it and confronts a group of people who are the norm. Yeah. He is the incongruous one and the other people are the people who do have that social censor. So what happens? Yeah. Although that doesn't necessarily sound like the opposite either because no. it's the guy saying, can't we all just agree that this is stupid? Am I the only person <laughs> That's that true. realizes that this is idiotic and everybody watching is saying, no, you're not the only guy, which is why we laugh and why we can empathize with the guy because he is optimistically hoping that everybody is a dumbass, but unfortunately it's not true. <laughs> and I think that just the idea of selecting where but making exaggerated choices can be incredibly helpful in terms of that idea of if you're playing a scene and it's I don't like the person is true but you turn into I cannot be within four feet of them no matter what happens that even like making choices like that especially in an exploratory uh, section of, of rehearsal you know can force you into finding interesting choices yeah. where you know um, and Carrie, one of your favorite examples I know of, of watching someone do something like that is uh, Dennis O'Hare and something that you saw him in when he was trapped in a corner. He, he was in, um, it was in the play Elling, and uh, he got cornered by Jennifer Coolidge's character. And she's slowly coming at him, and you see, and everything about the moment, he's, it's, it's setting up this expectation of what you think would happen next. He, he's he's going to push her away, he'll just stand there and take it, he'll crawl to the ground. Anything but what he did, which was to scale up the wall, uh, to scale upstage against the wall so much further than was necessary <laughs> that it just, every minute he kept doing it, it got funnier and funnier and funnier because it made sense for, once he did it, it surprised you, that was funny, then he kept doing it <laughs> and that's when it just stopped making any sense and then got even funnier. Well, it's like yeah, the permit. It's the, that permission thing. It's like establishing what the rules are. So there's yeah. that initial surprise, and then it's like, okay, this is what we're doing now, and and we're gonna keep doing it. Then, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but but that expectation, like letting everybody know what the game is, and then they're participating in the game. And I think part of that again is is you know so much of comedy, and frankly, so much of good storytelling is setting up and breaking expectation. But that idea, which is interesting, is you sort of do it twice in a row in that example, which is his first move is surprising. And so, so then there are new rules. I understand you're going to surprise me by doing things suddenly. And then it keeps happening for 15 seconds, which broke that rule that you had just established. Yeah. This is, again, something that is not being mentioned around the podcast, uh, Mike, for the first time. Um, but... Uh, that idea that I call it the, like the sort of the stenographer in your brain, you know, while you're doing your work, while you're pursuing your objective, while you're in the moment, while you're doing all of that, you are taking note of, especially in rehearsal process and hopefully in 
performance process, which is still a process. The successes and the things that worked and the things that didn't and the things that landed for you and the things that were effective for you and the things that worked with your partner and the ways in which you were able to hit your mark and did that choice because you had to get in that light, did that choice feel like it fit within what you were working on. Um, and I think in that, in playing comedy, that stenographer is alive and well. Uh, we opened with the difference between playing comedy and telling jokes. And I think in a lot of ways, the playing of comedy and the telling of jokes, once you get to a certain point in the process, you're essentially doing both. That your skill and technique set is what another thing that your stenographer is cataloging as you're working. Um, I know, I mean, not that I do a lot of musicals, but in the same way that the while you're in a musical, you're doing your work, and it might be a musical comedy, so you're also doing your comedy work, and you're also working on the way that you're vocalizing, and your dynamics, and your tone, and making sure you're playing through all of that, that there are techniques layered on top of it, but you need to be sort of conscious of all of those balls in the air at the same time. And when we get into the these questions of calibrating your objective and your choices, those the responses you get from the audience or from your partner or the things that just feel right to you, those are the things that you can take note of and then bring into, you know, working in a bit more of a technical way. Mm. And these are not new thoughts around the podcast table. I mean, we have the same basic fundamentals of acting work. You want to be doing, working on the way that you work on your craft while you're doing your work. You want to be bringing yourself to your role and making choices that are creative and not only that, but reflect your work and what you want to bring to it. And I think an, a really interesting example of that, and it kind of feeds into objectives and obstacles and stakes and actually super objectives, which is not something we've really talked about, but yeah. sort of the one great thing that a character wants for their life. Uh, for their life. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about Ricky Gervais and uh, uh, Steve Carell's characters in The Office, which essentially the first three episodes of The Office, the script is almost identical for both the American and the British version of it. But that it seems to me, and again, there's much more to it than, than this, but the idea that Ricky Gervais, his character, largely longed to be liked, whereas Steve Carell's longs to be admired, which are related ideas but they've turned the, their characters, the way their characters evolve, but also even the way their characters delivered essentially the same lines sometimes into very different things. And, you know, that idea of connecting and, and something that actually I think, again, I think both of those are masterful comedic performances. But what was so interesting about that is that they were able to find both humor and pathos out of the same want out of the fact that you would find them ridiculous for trying so hard to get this thing, but then your heart would break for them when it didn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I think similarly, again, I think those two characters are, are interesting to look at because they actually ended up having totally different ways of approaching, again, very similar material, because 
again, with the idea that you want to have something incongruous, but some other things congruous, that there's a degree to which, even though Ricky Gervais's character said some awful things, a lot of the stuff that he said was kind of the normal, you know, corporate banter, except said in these rhythms that no one has ever spoken in, that had all of these, you know, things laced into the silences that made it hard to pin down what was so uncomfortable, but it sure enough was. But Steve Carell's version of that character actually had clearly studied corporate speak and the way the rhythms, and he had all the rhythms down. If you weren't listening to the words, he sounded just like a great manager, except when you listen to the words, they were all the wrong words. Yeah. <laughs> but again, that, that, that just again ties into that idea. So much of what was successful about both of those performances is the idea that they get the stuff that's supposed to be authentic, that's supposed to be right, really right, so the stuff that's off feels really off. Mm. It makes the performance really much more specific um, than if it's just, it's comedy and so we're gonna do anything that makes people laugh. Because you can't, that is actually one of the big differences between telling a joke and doing comedy, yeah. is the idea that when you're telling a joke, it's about making people laugh right at the end of it. When you're doing comedy, you still have a story to tell, you have a whole play to get through, you have expectations you're setting up in this moment that are gonna pay off in laughs three pages from now. Yeah. So you s still need to be doing the character work, doing the artwork, even as you're nailing, but they do need to laugh at the end of this line. It, you know, it, it really is, I mean, that I, I really do think is why you know, comedy is, is especially hard, is that there, again, is a whole additional level and maybe even two additional levels of analysis that you need to do on the script before you can start doing your work. And that payoff that comes three minutes later or three episodes later, or in the case of, you know, these shows, three seasons later, mm -hmm. is a an indication, it's the A, the bullshit indicator, again, of how you know how well does the audience identify that trait as a character trait and it's an opportunity for these actors i think it's it's especially unique to television um, but is present in a play or in, in any you know format an opportunity to develop a rich character with all of this history that by season 7 steve carell can write one word on the whiteboard in the office it's a sight gag from the first murder, he walks in with a different tie and we know, okay, what is he doing? Mm -hmm. We don't expect this character to be walking out of the church. So in the cold open for the show, to see that character walk out of the church, I think that show is actually particularly good at that because they do the cold mm -hmm. open with everyone and one character doing something out of, out of character six, seven, eight seasons in, yeah. you know, is an opportunity to play on that history that's been built. Well, that also, and, and that, I think, you know, can get us kind of nicely into some other topics that we've talked about in the past about character history and storytelling as an information delivery system and, and things like that, because that figures in. It is something that they say about writing for television comedy is different than other kinds of comedy, because the idea, if you're writing for The Office, is not to write a line that is in and of itself funny, but a line that is funny when Jim Halpert says it the way that we know Jim Halpert will say it, knowing what we know about him from previous episodes. 
You know, but there's a degree to which, I mean, that is obviously something that stretches over seasons and things like that. But it is a really important thing to realize as you are building a comic performance, that idea of that you need to be aware of setting up the expectations, setting up the ground rules of your characters, setting up those things so that when your character walks into the middle of a situation, the audience goes, uh-oh, because they know how you're going to feel about it. Right. You know, so, that, you know, so and, and that idea that that can be a really important part, because the other thing that's really important is that the joke lives in the audience. It doesn't live on the stage. The joke lives. It gets into what you were saying earlier, Jersey, about it being a mental and intellectual exercise to a degree that the joke belongs to the hearer, not to the teller. Right. And so what you need to do is give them the information they know sometimes to tell themselves the joke. You know, I mean, it's actually something Bill Maher does all the time. We, we see him talk, and he says a setup, and everyone cracks out because, all right, you got it. You, know, you got it. You got it. Fine, we'll move on. <laughs> but that idea that sometimes, and again, it's about the modulation of it, because sometimes it's about don't let them see your cards. Right. Sometimes it's about throw them off the track by act, and the way to do that is by actively making them think you're going someplace else mm -hmm. until, bang, you go to the funny thing. Right. But sometimes it's about, I've set up this thing about this character, and just the very fact that I walk into the room at this moment should be hilarious. Yes. And especially, I love the, the sitcom thing as an example, because when you have eight seasons of characters and 15 characters, you have all of that history that's built in for fans of the show or whatever. Um, I think a, a, another great example from NBC Must See TV... Uh, which is our theme of the, the, the <laughs> this episode, apparently. It's from Frasier, right? There's this cold open that, that uh, David Hyde Pierce is. David Hyde Pierce, who's so... You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. It's a physical comedy bit where he's trying to iron his shirt, mm -hmm. right? I think it was a later season, four, season four or five. David Hyde Pierce, wonderful comic actor, physical comedy, theater background, um... Appearing on Broadway now. Um, and is he? No, maybe he's not. <laughs> <laughs> Appearing on Broadway frequently. Uh, he's, he's great. And, and uh, two things. He executes well. You know, he does the bit. It's essentially a dumb show where he's trying to iron his shirt. He pricks his finger. He keeps seeing the blood and fainting and then reviving and burning his shirt. And eventually, like, the apartment is about to burn down. And it's a four-minute bit without dialogue. It's a cold open for an episode. Now, you can't do that cold open in the pilot, or even in season two, because what's so wonderful about it is that we know that character he had crafted because he's such a wonderful actor. Mm -hmm. We knew who this guy was. We know when we see him, we know who he's in love with. We know where he's going. We know how important the shirt is to him. We know exactly when we see the, the blood on his finger, it's a saddest, like, of course, he, this guy faints at the sight of blood. And it, it, it is believable that he would do so based on the character that he's built. Mm -hmm. But you wouldn't have that same payoff if that were how you opened your pilot. You could try, but the extent to which character history can give you a shorthand in comedy. I think some of those great things in other NBC must-see TV things they do now are they'll do like a mashup or like a song where every character from all the different... It's like a commercial. Every character will sing the same song together and they'll pan around the office or whatever, you know, 30 Rock. But you just need five five seconds or one second with each character to see that one character, you know, doing that thing in the background. It's like, that's totally the way that character would sing mm -hmm. The Brotherhood of Man, which I think is a recent one that they did. You know, all I need is that one second because there are seven years of history behind, you know, Jack McBrayer doing the thing on 30 Rock or whoever the character is. 
that you can then bank on. It's easier, not easier, but it's it's so rich, and I think that's why there's so much comedy on television that's doing well right now, and actors are flocking to TV shows, and, and, and writers like to write for comedy, because it's an opportunity to do that. But you can also do it in plays. I mean, But I think it's it's really important to think about in within that, that when you're talking about doing a play, yeah. you don't have seven seasons to set it up, yeah. which means you don't have a second to waste. And that doesn't mean every second needs to be about doing a joke, but that idea of really being sure that you're being really specific about the work that you're doing that isn't quote-unquote funny, to be sure that you're giving the audience a really clear picture of what to expect from you so you can play against it. I mean, we started off with why did the chicken cross the road, and you kind of take that for granted, but why did the chicken cross the road? The punchline is to get to the other side. What makes it funny is I'm going to tell you a joke, and then I don't. I mean, it's a little tiny joke, but it's all about, like, that wouldn't actually work if we were at a chicken farm and there was a chicken on the other side of the road, and I said, Jersey, why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side wouldn't be funny because there was a reason to actually ask that question. But if the idea is I'm asking it because it is a joke, and then I don't tell one, again, playing against expectation. Well, I think yeah. playing against expectation, I'm deeply interested in the circumstances by which you and I arrived at a chicken farm. <laughs> and one of them oh, has Jersey, escaped. I have, such, I have such plans for the summer. <laughs> um, but just talking about character history in general, and, and just speaking in terms of like building character history like we do in our work, I think it's really, I've always thought, and I'd like your opinion on this, uh, that it's, I like that acting is acting out optimism thing, because I think you always have to have come from some place of humility. I mean, in acting in general, but specifically with comedy. And that, a fun thing I do when I do a comedy play is I'll look at any little thing that seems inconsequential. Maybe there's like a duck in the scene and it's never mentioned and it's just somebody's pet duck and no one cares. I'll create an entire character history about some humiliating experience I had with a duck. <laughs> because then every choice you make whether the audience knows it or not, is about not making the same mistake again and making it better this time. And it just, it, it, I don't know, it's, that's a fun thing to do because then you're coming from a place of fun and humility. And then you can go in so many ways. I could, you could decide, it's a behavior thing. You can decide, I, I, you know, I'm over that, I don't care about ducks, and then you're the laid back character. Or you can say, I am, you're highly aware of the duck in the room the whole time. And then you're a paranoid. I mean, it, it could lead to like all these fun, exciting things. Oh, I love that. Like calibrating, you know, you know like everything is going to go through the duck. Yeah. But calibrating like what your relationship to the yeah. duck is in any At given this moment point determines. In time. That's great. So um, why did the chicken cross the road? Because the duck told him what happened. He didn't want to see his friends to see him hanging out with me. But I, do, I think that it's that humility thing, I think, is very important. Because I think that ties into the joke is up with the audience. That you, it takes it, if you come in from a humble place, it's it the, takes it off. Like, it's, it's not, you're just doing what you have to do versus trying to be funny. It's the empathy thing. You know, you want, yeah. you, the audience wants to root for you. Yeah. Because then the laugh really is that, it's like a completion of hope. It's that satisfaction in that guy that really thought he could walk over that garbage can and did it in that crazy way because there was somebody watching and didn't want anybody to see, did it. You know, <laughs> there's that moment of solving the thing. Yeah. There is an obstacle and I have an objective and the stakes are so high 
And to see somebody figure it out is so often what releases that laugh, which is why I think there's that essential link between telling jokes and playing comedy, although they're not the same thing. There are things that overlap. It's like in, in, the, in improv. You know, the satisfaction isn't that somebody came up with the weirdest, most kooky answer. The satisfaction is that somebody answered the question, you know, based on their circumstances and where they were with mm -hmm. trying to do what they were doing, rather than, you know, what'd you have for lunch today? Octopus eyeballs and <laughs> monkey soup. You know, it's not necessarily as funny as what'd you have for lunch today? Fish. Why'd you have fish today? It was cold. You know, whatever the thing, you know, to play the scene rather than to try to do the funny thing to take you in a direction of building a character, building a history, building a relationship, you know. I think also something with character history and previous circumstance that can be really useful is that idea that sometimes, you know, sometimes part of what acting a scene in a comedic way is about is about saying the lines funny. They, you know, it generally is that there's a spin on the line that makes the line funny. But I think it's a lot easier and a lot more repeatable and frankly a lot more grounded and a lot more able to be incorporated into a whole performance if rather than just, and on this line I'm gonna hit this word, but you've figured out what is it that Carrie and I know that I'm saying it this way because I'm trying to communicate something to her that Jenny and Jersey won't understand. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's still going to be, I'm gonna hit a strange word in the sentence which is going to make it funny, but again, it then lives within the context of a whole performance rather than and now the actor is going to hit a funny word right. because then the character stops existing for a moment you know because again part of the really important you know very simple thing to embrace is that again unless your character and one important question to ask is does your character believe themselves to be being funny at this moment if they are not intentionally being funny in that moment you cannot continue a truthful performance and just do the line funny. You can just do the line funny. But if the idea is you're trying to build a truthful performance throughout that all connects and is funny, you need to find the reason that the character is glancing the line that way yeah. rather than taking a step out to be the actor and say it. Which again is the same as something that we've said around the podcast table many times, which which is, you know, if you have to hit your light in tech because that's the light that they got and the grid in this theater is weird and it'll just be better if they can see you there because that's, you know, where we need you. Figure out a way to get there. And in terms of, um, you know, comedy technique type stuff, it's like figure out a way to get that line out to the house or figure out a way, but don't just turn and dig your hands and say it to the crowd because then, because as I said earlier, it's a way to support all of that work that you're doing, but to abandon it in order to just do the thing that is the thing that's funnier, it, it undoes all that work that you've done. It's finding a way to support that work and get it, deliver it to the audience. And at the same time, you know, that idea of if you do need to interact with the audience, which you do sometimes yeah. in comedy, you want to find a truthful relationship with them too. In One Man, Two Governors, that's playing now, and uh, James Corden just won the Tony for his extraordinary lead performance in it. One of the big parts of it is that he is the narrator and is talking with the audience, but it re I mean, you really do feel like you've developed a relationship with him, and you have a different relationship with him than he has with different people.
people in the show and there were things that he would say to us that wouldn't make sense for him to say to other people in the show and things that he would say to other people in the show that wouldn't make sense for him to say to us. You know, but there was something, again, about that there really was real work done on him and his character, why he has that relationship with us yeah. that was really important. Before we move into uh, talking about specific tools for playing comedy, a question that I have is this. Is Jenny Curlin, you have not said much up until now, and yet are without question one of the funniest actors I've seen. Why have you not had much to say up until this point? I feel like I'm, I, I'm actually really enjoying listening to you guys and learning from you. I, I don't know. I, I know that when I am working on a character, I'm choosing objectives and goals, and I have built this character history, and I feel like what makes it possibly funny is that like I, I, my choices are so real to me, <laughs> but I feel like might be not people's normal choices. But I don't know how to, that's just the choices I make. Like, I'm, I don't know how to, quant, I don't know how to talk about that. It also isn't unique to your work in comedy either. I think mm -hmm. you're just one of the best actors I know. And one of the major reasons is because there's so, you have this amazing imagination and then ability to fully invest in it, which I think is, in terms of the basics we were talking about earlier, is the primary, like the fundamental thing. I mean, definitely in comedy, but in acting in general is really at the base level what it, that's the job, you know, is investing in these circumstances. And it's interesting because I don't think I've actually, I mean, I can think of a couple of different productions that I've been in that I guess would be called comedies. But I don't, I don't, I don't know the experience, I don't know. I almost said Night Mother. <laughs> oh. I thought that was a <laughs> But I don't know if I know like the, the rules of comedic timing or the kind of logistical aspects of that different type of acting or theater. Or... Well, I think those all exist, you know, to support the type of work that you already, you know, that you already do. And they're not, they're tech, they're skills. They're, it's, all, it's like playing in a period style or working in musical theater or mm -hmm. working in particular costume or doing uh, an accent you know it's that thing that's supports the work but if the fundamental work is there I think it's successful you know I mean I think a part of it has to do with you know and slight detour but you know part part of building a career too is about really recognizing what you're good at and where you thrive and getting in the right rooms and it is something that I'm not sure necessarily I mean, it's actually something Kerry is extraordinarily good at. It's like setting up a joke and nailing the punchline. I mean, timing and stuff, which we should talk about in a second. But that actually is something that I, I think, Jenny, you have talked about somewhat eludes you uh, in terms of that technique, except that I don't think it actually does, A. Um, but B, I mean, I think the reason I think I wanted to kind of talk about this for a second is because you exist in a comedy almost purely on these sort of basic tools of acting, yeah. except as Jersey said, have the capacity to buy so deeply into the circumstances as set up in the play, in a comedy play, that 
you know, it's not necessarily about setup punchline, which sometimes is really critical for a play, but is much more about this person has an incredibly entertaining existence mm -hmm. that is incredibly satisfying and funny and sometimes heartbreaking in the end to watch them go through. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> you, I have actually directed you in things, Jenny Curlin, where in rehearsal you've gotten angry at people for laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Because you bought so much into the stakes of your character. What's the so. thing that you said earlier of uh, the joke isn't for the teller, you know? And you're like never in danger of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what's fair to out you now is a not particularly good joke teller. Um, which is fine because you're hilarious. And the problem that most people fall into, and I have definitely fallen into when I've done comedy, is leaning too heavily on the joke telling things. Like all of that is just, it's a, uh, it, it supports other work. But you, that, just, that just happens because you're so fully invested. Well, I mean, it's totally. You don't I, have that problem. I'm not very great at telling jokes. And I think it's because I don't really understand and necessarily how jokes work. Which is why the comedy thing eludes me. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I think, though, it does come back to that idea, which, frankly, the more I think about it, the more we talk about it, the more I think it just comes back to that idea of the foiling of expectations. Mm. And I think that some of the more technical aspects of things are about set up an expectation so you can do what no one would expect. Mm -hmm. And I think that you just lean, Jenny, immediately towards just doing stuff no one would expect. You know, there's something about buying so deeply into the stakes and having such, you know, an imaginative approach to the world that you don't have to worry about doing the ba-dump, ba-dump, so the ba-dink feels different. It's just, you're just ba-dink, ba-donk, ba-donk, and it's awful. <laughs> so th so uh, thank you, Jenny, for letting us explore your personal uh, comedy history a little bit. Um, but I think we should probably move into uh, a little bit of, of talking about the techniques that are specific to mm -hmm. comedy. You know, things like, you know, comic timing and how you deal with physical comedy and things like that. What, what thoughts do you guys have about those things? Comic timing is definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing. But it's also a weird term to use in terms of the work. Like, it's, comic timing, I think, is what we call something we see from the outside as an audience, but might not necessarily be, at least for me, the, a useful way to think about mm -hmm. the playing of something, in a sense. But it seems to me to be like the word that we use to describe the process of the character figuring out how to go about pursuing their objective or removing their obstacle or choosing their tactic. That it's that question of the satisfying answer. You know, um, if things are faster, they're funny because we like to see the character come up with an inventive solution that is unexpected and the longer we have to try to figure out what is going on the more chance there it is of being ex an expected answer an expected solution to the problem an expected response it'll read as measured or with effort or on purpose or trying to be funny rather than as spontaneous I also think, as far as comic timing goes, it in part goes back to the analysis element of it, too. Because mm -hmm. it's one of those things where someone, you know, knocks over your favorite, you know, vase. You could go, 
you know, what did you do to the bass right, right away? It might be a lot funnier to watch you hear it break, turn to see if it's actually broken, yeah. look the person in the, and all of a sudden the expectation of what are you going to do about this thing builds up. And you absolutely need to fill each of those steps to figure out what is my thought process, why am I doing it? But again, going back to the analysis idea, there does need to be some sort of a concept of it's going to be funnier mm -hmm. if we give the audience some time to wind up to what my response is going to be. Yeah. And so, it, you know, again, it's, you've got to do both of those things. You've got to figure out what is going to set up, set up a joke, essentially. Um, and then how do I make it truthful? Right. And I do think that there is a degree to which, I mean, there are some people who do have comic timing. I mean, I would love to say, I would love to say, there's no such thing, it's just about the truth of the acting. But, you know, it is, and you can feel, and frankly, there are people at this table who have great comic timing, who you can just feel when, okay, and this is the time that it's, you know, now we're ready for it. And there are people who just can sort of read uh, the circumstances of that. Sometimes for me, what I like to do when I'm playing something like that is I am a bit aware of the timing. But I try to put it into the action by making it about the other person. That, you know, rather than saying, and this is the moment where I'm processing whether or not the thing broke, this is the moment where I'm looking to see if it broke, this is the mo you know, that it really is about, I am so furious at him and I'm going to make him wait until I tell him. Yeah. I'm going to make him wait. I'm going to make it. Is he sweating it? Now that he's sweating it, now I can tell him. Um, you know, but that idea of it still allows you to be in the moment while still having some measure of what the timing is. That's also something, too. It's, it's not uh, that we've talked about a lot about setting up the circumstance so you can foil it. Mm -hmm. But I, I think another fun thing to play with, especially with timing and if you're tempoing it out and you're building that expectation to not you almost set it up in a way that makes people think, OK, now they're about to foil it. And then you. It's not that you don't foil it, you go above and beyond the expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which makes it, you seem like a lunatic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know what I mean? And or under, is, I mean, one of the- Or I way underplanned. Yeah, well, it's one of, one of my, I mean, I actually think it kind of sums up a lot about storytelling, but also a lot about playing comedy, is the moment in uh, Indiana Jones where Indy's going through the market and the guy with the sword comes out and swings the sword and swings the sword and swings the sword and swings the sword. And you're like, okay, okay, you know, sword versus whip fight, sword versus whip fight. And then there's the beat, okay, when's it going to start? And he reaches into his holster and pulls out his gun and shoots the guy. Which is just like totally about building up an expectation, foiling that expectation. In that part, in that case, what was interesting is it foils the expectation of something that actually makes a lot more sense than mm. the thing that you were expecting. And I actually think it is important in comedy that you always do it with something that makes a lot more sense than the thing that the person was expecting, but not necessarily more sense to the person. It's got to make more sense to the character. You've got to yeah. find the reason that to your character, spidering across the wall rather than just stepping around the person is the thing that makes sense to them. But if you're able to set up an expectation, foil it, and find the reason that your foiled thing, whether it's really above what they expect or really below what they expect or just really different than what they expect, is something that is the thing that makes sense to your character, you're kind of gold comedy-wise. Mm -hmm. That Indiana Jones moment was improvised, that gun moment. 
you know, given the circumstances, given the situation, maybe a little bit given the actor's long shoot day, and Harrison Ford just wanted to get it over with, but it totally works for the character, too. Um, you know, as a movie star, he brings that persona into Indiana Jones. He establishes that rhythm, that it makes sense. It's the successful completion of something we know to be true about this guy. There was, we did, um, uh, uh, caught up on our feet with a play, one of Jenny's play called The West Wing, and there was a moment in it that I knew innately would be funny. I don't even remember between the three of us who came up with this, but um, she hit me twice. And it was either, we either decided that she has to hit me again because it has to be three times because that's what's funny. You, you know that. But in my head, it, was, it still wasn't quite working until I realized that it'd be much funnier if I started to talk again and then she hit me. <laughs> and just because I think that's funny. And then I figured out a way to back it up by, it was easy. The character I was playing would never, she has to have, she, she has to have the last word. Mm-hmm. So it was like this, this conversation was not going to end with that second slap. It, it's, we're going to again <laughs> and, uh, so that you can do that you, you take, and it was funny you can start from the timing you can start from what is innately funny but based on the character yeah it, it might exist on two planes of like what is my rhythm what is the what is the expectation that you're setting up in terms of this character over the course of a sitcom or in play if I'm Lady Bracknell and I'm doing my Lady Bracknell this is how Lady Bracknell da, da, da. and then you break that and the timing I think timing is can be relative either to the situation the expectation or to the character's sort of base rhythm, too. And I think another big thing, again, that we've not really talked about much but is important is, again, the idea that in theater and in film and in, 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 uh, in television, it's a collaborative art. And that idea that, frankly, the director also has a lot of input into yeah. what is going to make a funny play funny. The other actors have input into it. There's design elements that are going to have input into it. And so part of the skills of an actor to justify, you know, is actually incredibly important when you're playing comedy because sometimes the director will say, you know what, it's going to be funnier if she hits you again. I need you to start talking and then I need you to hit her. You know, that, okay, that part of it is you've got to figure out how to do it. And especially, actually, if you don't have a lot of natural timing. I I do think there's a degree to which timing can't be taught. I mean, I think there are people who feel it and people who don't. And certainly by practice, you can get better at it. But, um, But certainly, I mean, I have seen really good directors direct great comic performances in people without great timing, but people with a great deal of ability to justify things, where the director has great timing and is like, okay, you need to give it two beats before you say that line, and the actor figures out how to justify it and does it, and, you know, they're basically relying on the timing sensibility of somebody else. Mm -hmm. You know, but, but that is actually a really important part of comedy is... Is being is a, I mean, some of our basic things is being able to justify, but also that ability to really come in with a sense of play and a sense of trying things out, because the funniest things in shows are never the things that you think are going to be the funniest things in shows. They're the things that happen in rehearsal, and we're like, ah, can we make that happen again? Yeah. Or that would have been four times funnier if when you drop the celery, you'd also drop the jar of pickles. Let's do that, you know. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, but that idea of really coming in with a sense, because it actually is interesting. You would think with comedy, people would come in with more of a sense of play, but my experience has actually been that people are mu- are more rigid 
in terms of experimentation in a, in a rehearsal of a comedy than they are in the rehearsal of a drama. Again, potentially in part because of that idea of there's this whole other level of analysis. But I think it's critically important that you come in and explore just as you would explore in a drama. Well, it's something, it's that thing of something being funny on the surface. Like, we know this is supposed to be funny. So there's that expectation. And it's also, I think it's the BS indicator, too. You know, that it reads right away if something isn't happening or isn't working. Especially if it's, I mean, if I'm playing my Lady Bracknell, everybody knows she's going to say handbag as the next line. You know what I mean? Like, there's a, everybody knows that play. Many people know that play. Half the people in the room have it memorized, or at least that scene, or those moments, or that plot twist. So it's not about doing the thing that's funny. You're not going to satisfy anybody by just telling the joke because the jokes are out there. They're public domain at this point. <laughs> you, the way that you're going to do your Lady Bracknells is the same way that you're going to do your Hamlet. And it's even more of a stark you know, BS indicator to try to play the joke of that when everybody already knows the joke. The satisfaction is in how is this person and the character I've been watching for the last two hours, what aspect of the fact that this guy you know, was found in the in the station in a handbag how is that going to come out in that moment which is all about I mean that and, and scene I mean we covered character history we talk about character history that's one that just it's all about that I think the best comedies I think we could agree <laughs> that um, The Importance of Being Earnest is a phenomenal comedy because the entire resolution of it is based on character history and not on joke telling mm -hmm. that's maybe why given you know a rehearsal process there's this thing of oh I'm in a comedy I have to do a funny thing but it really means you have to put your nose to the grindstone in terms of doing that work or else you'll be out to sea before we wrap up what are your guys thoughts about uh, playing physical comedy same specificity pursuit of the objective clarity I mean it's 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 the same I think there are more in the same way that you can do certain things to support the work that you do. There are certain things with physical comedy you can do to support the work that you do technique-wise. Um, but really, I mean, several of the examples we've come up with today are physical comedy examples. That it's, um, there might be more of a tendency in actors uh, to do more or go further or to flail your limbs around, but so maybe that's where the difference lies in, in the discipline of the approach to it. Mm -hmm. But essentially, I think the fundamentals, uh, if I think you guys would agree, they're the same. Yeah, and, and I think that there's the idea of, you know, sometimes you do do limb flailing. Sometimes yeah. that is a funny thing. But yeah, to find the truthful reason to limb fail. I have a healthy flail. career based on limb flailing. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I also think that there is figured into physical comedy something technique-wise that is similar to stage combat in terms of the idea that a stage fight that happens at the actual tempo that a fight would happen, an audience would not be able to follow it because it's a bunch of arms swinging around and for the audience to follow the story of a fight, they need the this person winds up and they connect and then the other person backs off and comes in and to make each of those steps clear and basically take a fight that might take seven seconds and it takes 15 seconds so the audience can see each step of it. Mm -hmm. And I think a similar thing, you know, to happen of that if it's about he spills the ketchup bottle and it's getting on his sweater and he reacts even though in real world, boom, you spilled a ketchup bottle and you see it's, and your instinct is just to pick it up. 
You could totally do that in a play. It wouldn't be especially funny. What might be funny, though, is if you just give that air of a beat so that it is, it spills, you see that it's spilled, you cover your shirt, you pick up the ketchup bottle to make sure that each of those four steps happens in a way that the audience can follow. Yeah, it's just important in terms of telling the story of the event, right. telling the story of the physical event. Because, I mean, that actually, at that example you gave of David Hyde Pierce, was wonderful. And actually, he won, a, I think it was his first Emmy for that, but he definitely won an Emmy for that episode, and he didn't speak a word in it. But there were the moments where, again, he pricked his finger, and it would be he'd lift his finger and see the blood. But instead of see the blood and pass out, he made sure there was a beat where you saw him see it, and then he passed out. Yeah. Because if it was just regular tempo of I see blood and I pass out, the audience wouldn't be able to connect up to that's why, you know, that's why it happened. Um, so that, I think, is an important part of playing physical comedy, too. Yeah, yeah there, are, there are just certain things, there are certain little kind of things you can do to help that timing that kids talking about or that calibration of pace in terms of connecting your thought process, which is essentially your acting work and the way they were talking about comedy as where your mind is rather than necessarily where your heart is in a general sense. But when your action is timed to the line, that is an opportunity for the audience to connect to what you're saying, where the scene is. And you can really give yourself great opportunities to, if it's the thing where, what the example Kit gave of the slow burn on the person that broke the thing, you know, if Kit's in the back chopping wood when he hears the vase fall, and when the thing cracks, is he freezes with the axe above his head. And we don't even get his face. We get the whole his back, and he gets to turn around with the axe in his hand. You know, that's an opportunity to show that. You know, it's a technique you can use to let people in on that process of thought through the way that you do physical stuff. You know, the the idea of like a button, yeah. you know, which is essentially just timing your action, your physical action, to the end of the line that you're using. Rather than, you know, I'm going out the door. I mean, how many times have we seen this? And I'm never coming back again. Slam, right? Rather than, I'm never coming back again. Walk to the door, open it, fiddle with the key. (laughs) You know, there's just a way to, this is the end. Boom. And now now you can laugh. Now you can go. Now it's over. You're playing through with your acting work and you're playing through physically. And if they can coincide or coalesce, then... I think you give yourself more opportunity to give permission to the audience to laugh. And there are kind of some basic other physical things about like, you know, they're not hard and fast rules, but they're pretty good rules about things like you want to be still on the punchline of a joke. Like if you're moving while you're delivering a punchline, the audience is busy doing two things at once, which is watching you move and hearing the line. You know, and those are sorts of things that are actually a little bit, well, it's actually as director and actor together. It definitely is something a director can help an actor with. Mm -hmm. There are some things in comedy that a director cannot help an actor with. I mean, that certainly is one. But it's a helpful thing to know, at least as you're polishing a performance, that, you know... If you do line, turn to the person on your right, stop, line, rather than line as you're turning. Right. You know, it's, it's you know, it, those sorts of technical things are just helpful th- helpful to realize. Yeah, it helps with clarity and all that stuff. Another one, you know, your eyes. And we talked about it even like the headshot episode of the podcast. But mm-hmm. if your eyes are available, that's the best access anybody has to what is going on with you, what you're thinking about. 
if you have your back to the audience and you have the X above your head, that they're going to be waiting to see what's going on with you in terms of the work that you're doing when you turn around to, and that slow burn of the person with the vase. And it's not about making faces with your eyes or doing anything, but make sure your eyes are available to the audience. You know, Make sure that the line and the clarity and the meaning of the line is available to the audience by being still when you deliver the punchline. If you can find a believable and justifiable way that your character needs to look in a certain direction, maybe it'd be helpful for them to look in the direction of where the audience is and deliver the line in the general direction of the house. That's one I think that is a can be a big pitfall for actors too mm -hmm. because that's something that we know, oh, you take the line of the house, but you really gotta find a way that it's in character and in the moment to do so. Otherwise it's, well, that's what I said, you know? <laughs> becomes, oh, they left, see? Yeah. I turned out when I did that. And again, that, I mean, that actually points to that, to the idea of how much a joke, frankly, the same thing as with, you know, drama and what we've talked about with, dramatic question and answering your dramatic questions is that it's about the setup. It's yeah. always about the setup. It's about setting up the expectation and paying it off. But also in terms of that idea of if you want to be able to turn down stage to deliver the joke, part of it is figure out a way to get up stage mm -hmm. so that turning down stage is turning down towards the other actor. Right. You know, but it's, it's, those are sorts of things that again, definitely a director can help with, but you know, can be helpful to think about about setting yourself up for your joke and another thing I just think is helpful to think is just find people who you think tell jokes well even though we're talking about that telling jokes and and playing comedy are two different things but in terms of the technique a lot of the fundamentals of joke telling you know are very similar to the fundamentals of comic timing and things like that. And I can almost guarantee you, if you, there's someone you think tells jokes really well, watch them, they're still on the punchline. You know, watch them, they're kind of building, you know, that there's a place where they're, you know, building backstory and listen to the ways that they're giving you information and things like that, because they're giving you all information that you're going to use later on. Fully burying the information. So you think you're listening to one thing, but you're really, you know, learning something else at the same time yeah and also be open as a character as an actor in the play to also have a genuine response to your expectations being foiled like i i get accused a lot of laughing <laughs> on stage mostly because i think most things are funny and social awkwardness makes me laugh it's just something that anything that in a lot of plays are built around a social awkward situation and I just think at least in the rehearsal process or whatever, you, you can be open to that, but then deal with it. Like, deal with it as a character. If you start laughing, don't just break and, oh, sorry guys, we gotta start over. What would happen if you started laughing in that situation, i.e. at a funeral or wherever? Like, it, it's, you gotta deal with the fact that you just busted out laughing in this yeah. really socially awkward situation. And that could lead to really interesting things. At least be open to it. I think people tend to be very rigid about that, and I... Well, you know, maybe because it it's works. a function of, again, the, the wanting not to, like, corpse on stage because you're playing a comedy. Right. But not laughing on stage as a result of we're both telling jokes at each other right, and I'm right. laughing at the jokes right. that we're telling, but I'm invested in the circumstances and as a character I'm laughing at what's happening in the situation, which I think is a fine line. So maybe in the same way in rehearsal people are regimented. And sometimes that could be a people very real moment. Like, that. they... Yeah. they I, I, I wish I could remember more of the details, but I was working at the actor's studio on a scene. And they, we kept doing it over and over again, and the, the guy we were working with was taking each actor away from each other and giving us different things to work on. And I forget exactly what happened, but I remember 
all I remember is I was sitting on a bench waiting for these two people to come in. And in one run of it, all of a sudden, I put together what the two of them were doing. And I, like, I realized that they had just come from like sleeping together and were lying about it. But I put it together based on all the work we were doing right in that moment. And for some reason, because of who those two people were, I, it made me really want to laugh. And I was like, but then I just had to kind of hold it in. So it became this scene where they just kept talking over me as I was just turning bright red and holding it in. And it, 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 it worked for what was happening. And awesome. we never would have found that if I was like, oh, can't break. Right. Yeah. Or whatever that And is. even if you do break, <laughs> I think about some of my very, very favorite moments and things that I've directed, for instance. And some of them are, th like in comedies, are things where the first time they happened, just everyone lost it. Like, it was so funny, people couldn't stay in the moment. Right. And okay, because that's what you want from people at home. I mean, you want to try to stay in the moment, but frankly, and even, even fantastic, dramatic moments have come out where it's just, you know, sometimes when you find like a really potentially transcendently funny or moving moment, the same way you want it to knock the audience over, sometimes it knocks the rehearsal room over too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you want to try to keep going, but sometimes that happens. Yeah, that happens also, in a performance. In a performance, <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, I hate to say this, but I, but I do believe it. We all agree that those moments, I remember all the moments that I've seen somebody yeah. who I think is a brilliant actor, who, and something happens, and they break. And I think the reason it's such a great thing is because the audience is then let in. We're all doing this together kind of thing. Yeah, it's like that empathy thing yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. I think this is so funny. Yeah, oh my and God, you, you think, think it's funny, funny too. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, like, that's the thing I think that's... that's <laughs> Yeah, you know, the great genius of, of uh, the amazing thing about James Corden's performance in uh, uh, One Man, Two Governors is just that idea that when he's dealing with the audience, that he's enjoying the show and enjoying the show in such a genuine way and such an ingratiating way and the show that he's seen 500 times on two continents over the past year and a half. You know, that his ability to, I mean, I, it's, it's kind of astonishing. But yeah, I mean, sometimes that's part of something. And actually, to watch people enjoy each other's company on stage is really kind of extraordinary and really kind of rare and really difficult to do in a compelling way, candidly. So if you're able to find the ways that your characters, I mean, not in a scene where it's about that you're playing the life and death stakes of things, and you know, but where it's a scene about people having a good time and being funny and fun together, and that's what the scene's supposed to be about. If you can find ways to do that. Um, and actually, now that I think about it, there was a, a, a show I directed a while ago where it actually came up in rehearsal. It was a very high-stakes moment between these two guys and, one, and there was a, a woman there who was watching it happen and she just started finding it so funny and chortling at, and all of a sudden collapsed back on the couch trying to hold it in. But then in rehearsal, they reacted to the fact that she was doing that and kind of became allies in the moment against her. And it became, and we ended up keeping it in the show. It was like fantastic. It was something that was totally unexpected and was actually in a show that was a, a comedy drama hybrid that was a real dramatic moment within it. There was something about in that world that made a huge amount of sense for this person to all of a sudden find things funny and for that to actually change the dramatic course of events.
And in terms of that relationship with the audience and the relationship with the other actors and the timing, I think it's incredibly fair to, as we discuss often around this table, goal-oriented rehearsal, goal-oriented performance. It's entirely fair to, for a run of, for a performance of a show, to work on nailing a joke, and then on the next performance, work on doing the work necessary to make that timing work, or to try to incorporate something into the character, working with the duck or whatever it might be, in order to release some of those laughs along the way, you know? And that's, I think, maybe where that hybrid between joke-telling and uh, playing comedy lies, is those great comedians that do the circuit, they know, like, this is the way that it works. And I'm sure they will tell you that truth, honesty, delivering it, not trying to get the laugh, but delivering the story or delivering the message of the joke is as crucial as the rhythm in which it's done, right? Um, but I think developing those skills or using the skills that you have to do that is a totally fair thing to work on in terms of specific goal or you know, work the way that we talk about at Cry Havoc, of course, supported by all that other stuff. Although I would say if you're not a person with natural comic timing or you don't have training in it or history in it or experience in it, there are ways to exercise those muscles. I think improv, as somebody with an improv background that's worked in it, I think that's a really great exercise in creative choices in acting out optimism. I mean, that's acting out optimism is essentially like the yes and thing. And improv is not theater. It's maybe more of a hybrid between joke telling and theater because you're doing it in the moment and you're laying bare your thought process and your way of solving those problems. So it's essentially like you're working on that muscle group. And I think also like the, you know, kind of clown techniques and joke telling, all that kind of stuff can work on, can help you to work on those um, those those muscles and to get a little more facile with it or to find the comic timing that you have or to realize that you don't have it and you want to go do you know go work on Chekhov although you should probably have comic timing for again Chekhov um, yeah so there are ways to work on it I don't think it's you know you got it or you don't kid I mean there is a certain element to which that's true but there's all there are also ways to develop and like I'm about to start taking an improv class just to flex those muscles again um, and get in that rhythm again because you can lose it. Something you need to keep. We've all seen people get deeply unfunny as their careers <laughs> progressed. But what I'm saying is there are ways. But what I'm saying is there are ways in which you can work on it and keep yourself, keep your weight up in that in that way. Um, the same way that we come here to work on dramaturgy and we work on all that stuff. I think there are venues and opportunities to work on comedy and to stay sharp and to stay quick. I think that's a good place to wrap up. If you like what you're hearing and would like to let other people know that the podcast is out there, uh, please let them know uh, that it's there. And also, you can go to iTunes and write us a review or give us stars. And you can also subscribe there if you're not already subscribed. If you would like to know more about the Cry Have a Company, our public events, our classes, our coaching sessions, uh, and ways that you can get involved, please visit www.cryhaveacompany.org. You can also like us on Facebook, where we are at the Cry Havoc Company, or follow us on Twitter at Cry Havoc NYC. If you have thoughts, comments, or questions about the podcast, you can email us at podcast at cryhavoccompany.org. And if you'd like to support the podcast and our other new play and artist development programs, you can go to www.cryhavoccompany.org backslash support to make a tax-deductible donation. So for myself, Kerry, Jenny, Jersey, and everyone at the Cry Have a Company, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon.
You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe. Thank you.